Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Well, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're in Philippians 2 again this week, this time looking at verses 19 through 30 as we explore a little help from my friends. This is actually part 6 of our study in Philippians called A Call to Joy. You know, there's a funny saying that no good deed goes unpunished. Alexander Van Horn was in an auto accident, and as her car began to produce smoke, her friend Lisa Torty, who feared that the car would explode and burn her friend alive, heroically pulled Alexander from the wreckage. Now, how did her friend thank her? Van Horn, who suffered paralysis in the accident, sued her friend Lisa, claiming that she caused the injury. Wow. Who knew that being a friend today could be such a costly endeavor? Of course, you know, we could just harden our hearts, keep everyone at arm's length, and never let ourselves be vulnerable enough to experience the pleasures of true friendship, friends who encourage and affirm, friends you can trust with both your secrets and your valuables. (laughs) Those are hard to find. But you see, we were created for community, and we function better when surrounded by faithful friends. Now, true confession time, you might not believe this, but I am by nature an introvert. Unlike my wife, I'm just, I'm not naturally a socially outgoing guy. So after finishing half of my degree at Wayland Baptist University in the Texas Panhandle and transferring to Southwest Baptist University in Missouri, where I knew no one, I struggled. Sitting in a cafeteria full of other students, eating alone was a miserable experience. But thankfully, there was Ben, who in approaching me, started us on a lifelong journey of friendship. And we ended up being roommates our senior year. He was best man at my wedding and I his. I even named my middle son after him. And even though I don't see him that often anymore, since he lives in Wisconsin, I I know that I could count on Ben for most anything. He'd go the extra mile for me in a heartbeat. Well, you know, it's, it's sad in our world today that that sort of relationship is more the exception than the rule, even in some churches. Even in Paul's day, mutual concern wasn't necessarily a popular virtue. Even the Christians in Rome weren't particularly interested in the needs of the church in Philippi. In fact, Paul says he couldn't find one single person among them willing to go to Philippi. But today, as we examine verses 19 through 30, I'm mindful of the lyrics from an old Beatles song, I get by with a little help from my friends. In Paul's case, the friends were Timothy and Epaphroditus. And from the example of these three men, we get the big idea behind this week's study, that Christians care for one another like family. Verses 19 through 30, Paul introducing us to uh, two of his partners in ministry, two average Joes, 
Neither was an apostle. Neither had the religious pedigree that Paul had. Neither had done great supernatural working of miracles. None of that stuff. Just two servants whose faithfulness should serve as an example for us all. Now, first, there is, and this is number one, if you're taking notes, the example of Timothy. Now, just who was Timothy? Uh, He was a young man originally from Lystra and modern-day Turkey who grew up in a multicultural house with a Greek father and a Jewish Christian grandmother and mother. His exposure to Greek and Jewish culture served him well as he helped Paul spread the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul had led Timothy to the Lord at a young age, and, and Timothy was instrumental in Paul's ministry. He was with Paul in Corinth. He was sent to Macedonia. He was with Paul on the return trip from Jerusalem. He assisted Paul in the writing of Romans and 2 Corinthians and Philippians and Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians and Philemon. Um, for years, Paul had relied on Timothy. Now, because of his exposure to Paul's influence and teachings and partnership with Paul on his travels, Timothy became a loyal servant of Christ and friend to Paul, on whom Paul could always depend. And there's three specific traits that show us the depth of his character and faithfulness that I want to examine more closely. First, Timothy had a servant's mind. Look with me at verse 19. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So Paul describes Timothy in glowing terms. No one else like him who's like-minded, he says in verse 20. It's the picture of two kindred spirits working side-by-side in ministry. But unlike those described in verse 21, the servant-minded Timothy sought the interests of Christ. In 1936, Dale Carnegie wrote the now well-known book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Many an eager reader has employed Carnegie's counsel on six ways to make people like you, 12 ways to win people to your way of thinking, nine ways to change people without arousing resentment. But you see, Timothy wasn't interested in winning friends and influencing people. Timothy didn't have to do all that stuff to make a difference. All he had to do was show that he cared. Yes, Timothy was an excellent student of the Word and would become a capable pastor, but somewhere along the way, he probably came to understand that to be an effective minister of the gospel, he must love people. See, the old adage is true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. He genuinely cares, Paul says. That means Timothy was the real deal. He was genuinely interested in the spiritual and physical welfare of other people. Paul had been concerned about the church at Philippi, and he wanted to send someone to relay his concern and offer help. But but here's something that's puzzling. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, with the Roman Christians in mind, Paul wrote, To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now, there were likely hundreds of Christians in Rome, 
In fact, Paul greeted 26 of them by name in Romans 16. Yet we find here in chapter 2, verse 21 of Philippians, not one of them was willing to make the trip to Philippi. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, Paul said. I guess they just assumed that somebody else would step up, but no one did. By contrast, Timothy had a servant's mind, a natural concern for other, and it's it's really too bad that the believers in Rome were so engrossed in themselves and their own internal affairs that they had no time for the important work of the Lord. But, you know, that's, that's pretty typical of some of the problems that churches create for themselves. They divert time and energy and concern away from the things that matter most. But Timothy didn't get caught up in church politics. He wasn't interested in promoting any party or supporting any cause or movement in the church that would create division. His primary concern was the spiritual condition of God's people. And that was second nature to him. Now, how did that come to be so? Well, I think the explanation is really found in the second trait that Paul emphasizes. Not only did Paul have, first of all, a servant's mind, but second, he had a servant's training. Look at verse 22. But you know his proven character because he has served me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Now, that Greek word for proven, it means a testing process of endurance that validates the character of the one undergoing it. It's a word that, you know, in ancient Greek culture was used to describe the way metals were tested and purified by fire. But Timothy had to prove his character. He had to be tested before Paul would add him to his mission team. So Paul didn't plug Timothy in from day one. He wasn't going to put Timothy's hand to the proverbial plow before he was prepared. And remember, Paul himself had also gone through an extensive period of being discipled before he entered into public ministry. So Paul left Timothy behind to become a part of the church fellowship in Derby and Lystra. And it was in that fellowship of believers that Timothy grew in spiritual matters and and learned how to serve the Lord. Then when Paul returned to that area a few years later, he was no doubt elated to learn that young Timothy was spoken highly of in Lystra and Iconium, as it says in Acts 16.2. See, Paul knew what he was doing and the way that he handled Timothy's training. You'll recall that years later, he would write to Timothy about the importance of permitting new converts to grow before thrusting them into important places of pastoral leadership. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul wrote to Timothy about those in, in leadership, that he must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. I remember as a 19-year-old freshman at Wayland Baptist University, majoring in church music and working at the campus radio station, KWLD, getting to interview Greg Voltz, the lead singer for the Christian band Petra, who were coming to do a concert in Amarillo. And I remember telling him uh, afterward that, that I wanted to be a, a Christian singer and asked for any advice that he could give me for, for breaking into the biz. <laughs> 
surprising to me at the time, he really just told me to stay active singing in church and to let the Lord lead. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, what? No tips from the industry insider? But you see, Greg Voltz understood that for one who wanted to be effective in ministering to others in Jesus' name, I had to grow. I needed to be united to a solid Bible-believing church and be discipled, despite what talents I may or may not have had. Besides, at that age and that stage of spiritual development, had I actually gotten some sort of miraculous break in the music industry, it would likely have done more harm to me than good. I might have become conceited and incurred the same condemnation as the devil. I needed to know God would open up places of service for me as I became more ready. And I'll tell you something, after making straight C's and freshman music theory that year, I quickly realized that music ministry wasn't my calling anyway. So Paul didn't give Timothy too much too soon. Gave him time to get his roots down. And then he enlisted him to work with him on his missionary tours. Paul told him in 2 Timothy 3 that you've followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. That's 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11, and verse 14. See, Paul schooled Timothy in the word and let him watch and learn from Paul's example. And guess what? <laughs> That's the way Jesus trained his disciples. He gave personal instruction, balanced on-the-job experience. Because, you know, experience without teaching can lead to discouragement, and teaching without experience can lead to spiritual deadness. So it takes an equal measure of both. Not only did Timothy have a servant's mind, but Timothy also had a servant's training. But as we move on to verses 23 and 24, because of those things, we see that Timothy had also a servant's reward. Let's pick up in verse 23. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. God would reward him for his faithfulness. And I think we see this come to pass in three ways. I mean, to begin with, Timothy had the joy that comes from serving others. Now, to be sure, there would be plenty of hardships and difficulties along the way, just as he'd seen with Paul, but there would also be victories and blessings to come. Now, Timothy also had the joy of serving Paul ministering alongside the great apostle and assisting him in some of his most difficult assignments. Timothy became a very valuable friend and partner in the gospel ministry. My dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord, Paul called him in 1 Corinthians 4.17. So valuable was Timothy that Paul mentioned him at least 24 times in his letters, two of which were actually written directly to Timothy. But probably the greatest reward that God gave to Timothy was to choose him to be Paul's replacement when the apostle was called home. You can read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But what an honor 
Timothy was not only Paul's son, spiritually speaking, and Paul's servant, but he became Paul's substitute. And that's why the name Timothy is one of the most respected by Christians today. You see, like Timothy's, the mind that is fully submitted to Christ isn't a product of a 35-minute sermon on Sunday or some sort of training seminar or even a year's worth of service. The mind that is fully focused on Christ is something that grows in us over time, just like Timothy, as we learn to follow God's leadership in our lives. But as we move on to verses 25 and 30, we find another example of faithfulness that bears examination, and that is number two, the example of Epaphroditus. Now, Epaphroditus was the member of the Philippian church who had risked his health and life to carry their missionary offering to Paul in Rome. And we'll read more about that when we get to Philippians chapter 4. Now, the name Epaphroditus actually means charming, but there's three characteristics of this charming man in these verses that are worthy of note. First, we find that Epaphroditus was a balanced Christian. Look at verse 25. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Paul couldn't say enough good things about Epaphroditus. Your messenger, minister to my need. But note how else Paul describes him. My brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. That's a picture of a well-balanced Christian, exemplary of the things that Paul had been saying in chapter 1 and that we saw in the first three installments in this study series, things that we talked about regarding the fellowship of the gospel. Well, that's, that's the brother he's referring to, and the forwarding of the gospel. That's the co-worker, and the faith of the gospel. That's the fellow soldier. But balance is is very important in the church. You know, some are so involved in defending the faith of the gospel that they neglect building fellowship with other believers. Now, others emphasize fellowship so much that they forget the forwarding of the gospel. Dr. H.A. Ironside used to tell a, a, a story about a group of believers who were very inwardly focused. Their main emphasis was was fellowship, community. And they gave very little thought to reaching the lost or even equipping themselves to defend the Christian faith against its enemies. And in front of their church, they hung a sign that read, Jesus only. But a big wind came and blew away the the letters J-E-S so that the sign read, us only. See, that's not the mark of a Christian or a church that's balanced. Well, Epaphroditus was a balanced Christian, but I want you to notice something else about him. He was a burdened Christian. Let's pick up in verse 26. Since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Verse 27 says, indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Then skip down to verse 30. Risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. He was a burdened Christian. Now, first of all, Epaphroditus, he had a burden for Paul. 
When he heard in Philippi that Paul was a prisoner in Rome, he volunteered to make that long, dangerous trip to Rome to stand at Paul's side and assist him. He carried the church's love gift with him, protecting it with his own life. You know, our churches today need more men and women like that who are burdened for others and for the gospel. But the only problem is that in most churches, we've got too many spectators and not enough participants. Now, Epaphroditus, he also had a burden for the church. Now, why is that? Well, because they worried about him. After arriving in Rome, he became very ill, almost died. That delayed his return to Philippi, so the people there became concerned about him. But Epaphroditus was not burdened about himself. He was burdened over the people in Philippi because they were burdened about him. Like Timothy, he had a natural concern for others. In fact, that, that Greek word there in the text, distressed, it means to be in anxiety. It's the same word used to describe Christ as he prayed in anguish in Gethsemane. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 37. You know, like Christ, Epaphroditus knew the meaning of sacrifice and, and service. He was a burdened Christian. But here's something else about Epaphroditus. He was a blessed Christian. Look at verse 28. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Hmm. So why was Epaphroditus blessed? Well, simply put, because he was a blessing. I mean, what a tragedy it would be to go through life and not be a blessing to anyone. Epaphroditus was a blessing to Paul. He stood with him in, in his prison experience, and he didn't permit even his own sickness to hinder his service. But he was also a blessing to his own church. Paul instructed the church to receive him with joy and to hold him and people like him in honor to the glory of God because of his sacrifice and service. A blessing to Paul and to his own church. Ever known someone like that whose purpose was just to, to bless people? Vernal Sims, a pastor in Philadelphia, once wrote, I grew up in a rough Boston housing project called Columbia Point in a family of nine children. Although I'd been a hardworking student, paying for college seemed impossible. But my mother's favorite expression was, pray, and the Lord will make a way somehow. I viewed that as good advice for other people. But when I decided to go to college and seminary, because I believe the Lord had a call on my life, I had no other choice. I packed for college, even went to orientation, but still didn't have any money. I'd have to pack up my belongings and make the 100-mile trip back home. But an heir to a corporate fortune heard about my plight and paid for my college and seminary education. After I graduated, I went to my benefactor's office to thank him for all he had done for me and asked 
what I could do to pay him back. <laughs> Imagine my saying to a multimillionaire, what can I do to repay you? The man responded, help somebody. I spent the last 20 years in the ministry with that goal in mind, and I've learned that the blessing of God is like a boomerang. As I've tried to help somebody, the Lord has blessed me. Like Vernal Sims, like Epaphroditus, help somebody, church. Bless somebody and be blessed in the process. Epaphroditus was a blessing to Paul, a blessing to the church. But you know, Epaphroditus is also a blessing to us today. He proves to us that the joyful life is the life of sacrifice and service, that the mind fully surrendered to God's leadership really does work. Now, Christ gave us the pattern to follow. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul shows us the power to live it, chapter 2, verse 13. And Timothy and Epaphroditus are the proof that this submission really works. But what about us, Christians? Are we fully surrendered to God? What about our sacrifice and service? Are we truly the kind of folks that, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, can help our friends get by? Or are we failing to get the job done? Do we have too many spectators in the church and not enough participants? Can we really say that we're balanced with equal focus on worship and discipleship and fellowship and outreach and service? Or do we just like to camp out on one or two of those? You see, every Christian leaves, lives in either Philippians 1.21 or Philippians 2.21. Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 2.21 says, All seek their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Well, you see, if it's the second one and not the first, well, then we can't live out the big idea that Christians care for one another like family. So do you want those in the church to, to, to get by with a little help from their friends? Let me give you a few suggestions, some, some action steps that were motivated by my reading of this passage. I think the first one is reach out. Reach out to people in your sphere of influence who don't know Christ, coworkers, neighbors, unsaved family members. Or, or, or maybe here's, here's an even simpler start for those of you in the church. Get the names of people you encounter when you visit, uh, who, who visit your church or, or your small group for the first time. And follow up with them. Not just once. I mean, follow up with new people every single week. Let them know you're excited they were here. Invite them for lunch or coffee or to come to a group fellowship. So reach out, but then reach in. I mean, when was the last time that you visited, called, texted, or emailed church members you haven't seen in a while? You know, sometimes we find ourselves saying, I wonder what became of so-and-so. Well, you know, it's hard to know if nobody lifts a finger to contact them. That's where our small group ministry should really shine. So reach out, reach in. Here's another one. Relieve. Relieve a need. Help someone. 
serve the body of Christ, volunteer in the community, be the blessing. And then the, the final one really kind of goes back to the first one. But that's remember the lost. Remember that there's a whole world full of people who aren't blessed the way you are because they don't know the joy of a relationship with the Lord. They haven't gotten by with the help of our friend Jesus. So pray. Pray for them. As a young man in Dublin, Ireland, Joseph Scriven enrolled in a military college to prepare for an army career. But poor health forced him to give it up. Soon after came a second blow. His fiancée died in a drowning accident on the eve of their wedding in 1844. Later that year, he moved to Ontario, Canada, and his plans for marriage were dashed once again when his new bride-to-be died after a short illness in 1855. And in his depression, Scriven penned these words, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Proverbs 18.24 reminds us that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know who that friend is? That friend is Jesus. He's the one you can always count on. The one who will always help you get by. Not just get by, but thrive. See, Jesus said in John 10.10 that the thief comes to steal and kill and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly abundant life here on earth, but also eternal life in heaven. He told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus can be your friend forever if you'll simply call on him today. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.